The book of Esther belongs to a dark period in Israel's history when they were enslaved and scattered across the Babylonian Empire. And that is one of the reasons why the book of Esther is still today a favorite among Jewish families. You can find it in the Old Testament between the books of Nehemiah and Job. So if you're thumbing and looking for the book of Esther, when you see Ezra and Nehemiah, if you go to Job, just turn left and you'll discover the book of Esther. In fact, it is a story that is retold among Jewish families still today. Um, In late February or early March with what is known as the Feast of Purim. It is a feast that commemorates the first horrifying attempt at the extermination of the Jewish people and how God providentially rescued them. Now I want to try to give a just a brief summary of Esther so that we can see what God was doing in this incredible story. The story takes place in modern day Iran. At that time the kingdom was called Persia and the capital where Esther lived was called Susa. Today in Iran that city is called Shush, right? We were like, shh, be quiet, right? That's That's the city. It's about 483 B.C. And the Jewish people have been in exile for about a hundred years. You know the story of Israel due to their idolatry. They were captured by the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar, whose kingdom then was later captured by King Darius of Persia. When Darius dies, Xerxes takes over and inherits all of these Jewish refugees. So one night... Xerxes and his buddies are drinking and having a good time and they probably had a little too much to drink so they decide they're going to bring in the queen, uh, uh, Queen Vashti and put her crown on her head and parade her up and down in front of all of these drunken men so that they could gaze upon her beauty. She says no. The king is embarrassed and decides he's going to make an example of Queen Vashti, so he banishes her from the kingdom. In order to find a new queen, Xerxes develops a new TV series that is still on TV today called The Bachelor. And that's the way the story goes. I mean, it reads, dear ones, um, just like that. Um, Esther chapter 2 and verse 2 says, Let young virgins be sought out for the king. And in the process, a Jewish girl named Esther enters the contest. She's an orphan. She is uh, something going for her that the text says she is very beautiful. In fact, verse 7 says, The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And so here are all of these girls that are taken into this harem of the king. And so they're dressed up, they put on makeup, and they're all doled out. And what would happen is one of them would come and spend the night with the king and then go back into the harem. And so after the king has worked his way down the list with all of these girls, he would choose one to be the new queen, and the rest of them were kind of stuck in his harem. So really, if you think about it, for these young girls, I mean, their life is basically ruined. 
Right? They can never be able to, to go back and get married and have children of their own. They're in the king's harem now for life. And so this process goes along. And uh, really, the text says it was no contest. Esther, hands down, was more beautiful than any of the others in the contest. And so she wins. This little Jewish refugee orphan becomes the queen of Persia. Esther, in the process, according to chapter 2, conceals the fact that she is Jewish. Which meant she wasn't going around talking about the fact that she believed in and she worshipped the God of Israel. Enter Mordecai into the story. When Esther's parents died when she was young, Mordecai raised her up, took care of her. One day Mordecai is sitting at the king's gate and he overhears two men discussing a plot to assassinate Xerxes. Their names were Big Fan and Teresh. Now, parents, let me just tell you right now. You name your son Big Fan, right? I guarantee he's going to grow up to be a thug. Okay? It, it hands down. So here are these two men, Big Fan, right, and Teresh. They have this uh, assassination plot. Mordecai hears about it, gets word to the king, and Big Fan and uh, Teresh are executed. What's interesting is a note at the end of chapter 2. A scribe is writing it down in the book of the Chronicles of their history. Now, enter into the conversation an individual by the name of Haman. Haman is a wealthy and influential man occupying the second position of command in the country. He is what's known as the prime minister of Persia. Now, right before the Feast of Purim, Jews around the world gather in their synagogues and they read this text. Listen to this. This is from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 25, verses 17 to 19. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt. How he tacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail and those who were lagging behind you. He did not fear God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all of your enemies around you, in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. Now why would they read this text? In every Jewish synagogue, right before they celebrate the Feast of Purim, here's why. Just after the Israelites crossed the sea, it's the third day after leaving Egypt, the Amalekite army attacks them from behind. And what they do is that they, they come across these older women, maybe small children, and they kill them first. They're attacking these who were lagging behind, who weren't able to keep up with the rest of the group that was traveling. Right? This is a, a command that wasn't just about remembering the attack. It was about remembering what they were supposed to do with the Amalekites all together. 
And the reason this is connected to the Feast of Purim is because Haman, the Agagite, was a direct descendant of Amalek. Amalek was a person who later became the leader of a clan, and that clan became a nation, and that nation was known as the Amalekites. Amalek was a grandson of Jacob's brother Esau. The rabbis teach that Amalek was raised in the tents of Esau. So you can imagine what they talked about as they're sitting around a campfire. They're talking about how Esau's brother stole his birthright, how they took everything that belonged to them. And so the Amalekites grew up with a hatred in their heart for the Jews. And so here is Amalek listening to these tales and listening to these stories and so they attacked the Jews now it's interesting when they left Egypt all the other nations of the world were afraid to touch um, uh, the, the Jews because of how God miraculously provided for them but the Amalekites even though they knew that the Jews followed the God of Israel they didn't care and so they attacked. Now fast forward, if you will, 1 Samuel chapter 15. Right now you have King Saul sitting on the throne, giving instructions by Samuel to go and fulfill Deuteronomy. And so here is Saul taking his army in battle against the Amalekites. Right, And his instructions were, slaughter them. His instructions were, remember them no more on the face of the earth. You know the story, you know that Saul leads the army and they advance and they win the battle against the Amalekites but Saul did not do all that he was instructed to do. Instead, he kept Agag alive and he kept some of the choice animals, right? So they come back, they see Samuel, Samuel says, did you do what the Lord told you to do? Oh yes, I've obeyed the Lord. And Samuel's response is, well, what is that bleeding of sheep then that I'm listening to? Samuel teaches King Saul a lesson. The next day, he has Agag brought before him and Samuel cuts him into pieces. And he tells Saul, your kingdom is going to be taken from you and given to another. Now here's the reason why this is connected with the Feast of Purim. The rabbis teach that before Agag was executed by Samuel, he brought in a concubine, had physical relations with her. She becomes pregnant and bears a son. And the family lineage survives. And 1,000 years later, enter into the story Haman the Agagite. So Haman is a deceitful, conceited anti-Semite. He hates Mordecai because he's a Jew and because Mordecai had refused to bow down to Haman. So Haman develops a game plan. 
He tells the king he's going to pour money into his treasury if the king will let him execute all of the people who don't keep the king's laws. And of course, the king says, hey, um, go forward. That's, that's fine with me. And so we have this verse. Letters are sent out by couriers to all the king's providences with instructions to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children. This is not the first time this has been attacked as a a, a part of that seed that was promised in Genesis chapter 3, as a part of the seed of the woman. Right When Saul picked up a a spear to kill David, that was an attempt by Satan to destroy the promised seed. Right When Queen, uh, I believe it was Queen Athaliah, tried to kill all of the kingly family, they had to take a little baby by the name of Joash and hide him in the temple. And now Haman has a plan to annihilate all of the Jews. Just like the Nazis in the final solution to the Jewish problem, now a plan is put in place to kill all the Jews. When Mordecai gets word of what Haman is planning, he tells Esther. And still, remember, no one knows that Esther is a Jew. Mordecai says to Esther, Esther, you've got to do something about this. They're going to destroy us all. Chapter 4, verse 11, Esther's response is, what what, what can I do? I mean, if I go and I stand before King Xerxes, I mean, look what he did to his first queen. What do you think he's going to do to me if I come in and tell him that his actions are wrong? He's going to have me killed. So then Mordecai sends this message to Esther. Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Now, church, there have been debates over many, many years as to whether or not the book of Esther has any place in the Bible. There is no mention of the name of God. There is no reference to worship. There is no reference to faith. There is no prediction of the Messiah. There is no mention of heaven or hell. And so on the surface, it almost gives the impression, the book of Esther does, that it is not a religious book at all. In fact, Ray Stedman writes and says, it's a gripping tale, but one that you might expect to find in the pages of the Reader's Digest and not in the Bible. So what what does Mordecai mean when he says of Esther... Right, that she is there for such a time as this. See, I think Mordecai knows what every woman here today knows. The right man for the job is a woman. 
verse 16 says. By the way, I, I could tell you my wife added that in my manuscript, but I, I actually did it myself. Verse 16 says, Esther's response, I will go to the king, right? She asks everyone to fast and pray for her. And she says, I will go to the king, even though it's against the law, and if I perish, I perish. You see, Esther is made for such a time as this. She is bold and she is brave and she responds with courage. And God uses her bravery to save Israel. She plans a banquet for the king and for Haman. Haman, who is blinded by his own conceit, thinks the queen wants to honor him, right? He's thinking, man, I must really be something special if now the queen is wanting to honor me. Meanwhile, Haman's wife is having him build a gallows that is 75 feet high because on those gallows he is going to execute Mordecai, right? Something that is unfathomable and in conceivable and then when you go to chapter 6 verse 1 you have this on the night on that night the king could not sleep and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds the chronicles and they were read before the king now how ironic is this the very night that Mordecai is out building a 75-foot gallows in order to, to execute Mordecai and other Jews. The king can't sleep. So he has a historian come in, take out the book of Chronicles, which is really a book about their history, and has him read the book of history. And he reads about how an individual heard two men with an assassination plot against the king come and tell the king, and the king executes the two men. And King Xerxes says to the historian, was anything done to honor that man who helped save my life? And the historian says, no, there wasn't anything that was done. And so the king says, well, who's out in the temple court? Right? Who's still up this late at night that I might be able to, to have come in and I can give instructions for what they should do? And it's interesting, the historian says, well, you know what? I think Haman is out in the temple court. So he brings Haman in. Verse 6, of chapter 6. Haman came in and the king said to him, What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, get this, Well, whom would the king like to delight and honor more than me? So Haman thinks this is about him. Right? And so the king said, you know, king says, Haman, what do you think I should do to such a man? And Haman says, well, I think you ought to give him a royal robe, and I think you ought to let him wear a crown, and I think you ought to put him on a horse and parade him up and down the street so everybody can see how important he is, thinking that's what they're about to do to him. And the king says, you know what, Haman, that's a great idea. I want you to go out and I want you to do that to Mordecai. I want you to think about it. That's your sworn enemy. Right? That's your sworn enemy. It's like a bunch of Alabama fans going down on the plains and, you know, putting Auburn players on their shoulders and carrying them up and down College Street. All right? It's unthinkable. Haman couldn't believe it. But he does it. And then he goes home and throws a fit. Right? He goes home and he starts spewing to his wife and his wife 
becomes a prophet. And she says in verse 13, you're going to fall. It's a bad sign, Haman. And you are going to fall. And then comes the queen's banquet. Esther stands before the king and she pleads on behalf of her people and points to Haman as the evil mastermind behind it all. And you know the story. The king chases his mind. Haman's plan backfires and he ends up being hanged on the very gallows in which he built to execute Mordecai. And so ultimately in Esther... The bottom line of the story is that as Esther risked her life to save the Jews, so Jesus risked his life. He gave his life to save the world. Now let me just, as we wrap this up, speak to two groups today for a moment. First, to those who are here today who may be far from God. In other words, you're not certain if you died today, you'd go to heaven. You may be religious, and you may have a religious background. But the question is, right? if you were to stand before God, and He were to ask you, why should I let you into my kingdom, what, what would you say? Right? Would you parade your own righteousness before Him? Or would you speak of the righteousness of another? The book of Esther is here to point you to Jesus. She left her home and ultimately saved her people. And Jesus also turned his back on his home so that he could save us. One of the things I love about Philippians chapter 2 especially verses 5 through 7 or 5 through 11 is that it describes how Jesus emptied himself and identified with us taking the form of a servant and then he suffered and died to bear our punishment. Jesus didn't do it at the risk of his life like Esther did. Jesus did it at the cost of his life. He gave it all. And now Jesus Christ stands before the throne, not of some earthly king, but before the throne of all of the universe as king and savior to all who believe. Esther knew she had no right to stand before the king and ask anything of him, but she bravely stood to share her heart and to confess her need. And I'm just wondering today, Will you stand before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and confess your greatest need, salvation? Plead for mercy and discover the joy of eternal life. God's people in the Persian Empire were spared because Esther identified with them. And now you can be spared from eternal death because Jesus Christ identified with you. He took on flesh, he died, and he rose again so that if you confess your sin and place your faith in him, you can have eternal life. If you leave here today still far from God, still uncertain about where you will spend eternity, dear ones, listen. I love you, 
But that's on you. And that's your choice. Just like in every other situation, you're faced with a choice. And you're going to make a decision this morning. And then you're going to live with the consequences of that decision. And it is my prayer that today you will place your life in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. And let me say a word to believers today. Like Esther, here's some things that you need to remember. God has placed you here for a purpose. Mordecai recognized that Esther was in the palace for such a time as this. She was a part of God's plan. Your life is a part of God's plan. Every Christ follower is a part of a great plan of God to redeem the world. He's placed you here for a purpose. God is able to take even the painful circumstances of your life and use it for His plan. You may say, you know, well, my past is filled with mistakes. Well, so was the Apostle Paul's. And he said in Philippians 3, I'm going to forget what lies behind and press on to what lies ahead. Matt Chandler writes and he says, God is not only the God of the cross who forgives your past, but he is also the God of the resurrection that remakes your future. Celebrate it. Third, your influence is best served when you leverage your life for the kingdom. Your influence is best served when you leverage your life for the kingdom. In his book, A Theology as Big as the City, Ray Backey says there are three main characters used by God in the return from exile. He speaks of Ezra, who taught the people God's words and God's ways, of Nehemiah, right, the architect, who rebuilt the city of Jerusalem, and Esther, the queen, who worked to bring about justice in the land. In other words, God uses all kinds of people for all kinds of things to bring about His plan. Some of you, God may be placing in ministry. And some of you, God is asking you to leverage your jobs and your careers for kingdom purposes. And then finally, ask yourself, whose kingdom am I living for? Whose kingdom... Am I living for? Esther faced the most fundamental decision of her life. Am I going to use this position to protect myself? Or am I going to use it to protect others, even if it costs me everything, even if it costs me my life? Right? And ultimately, this is a fundamental discipleship question, isn't it? Whose kingdom am I living for? Now, if you say, Pastor, how do I know? How can I evaluate my life in order to know whose kingdom I'm living for? Well, just answer a few questions. Are you sharing Christ with people around you? Are you using your talents for the mission? Are you giving your money away? Are you volunteering to serve in the community? Right? Always remember, greatness in God's kingdom is never found by trying to become great. 
Greatness in God's kingdom is found in offering your life for others. You want to know whose kingdom you're living for? Well, just take a look at what kingdom you're serving. Just take a look at what kingdom occupies your mind, your thoughts. And then say, God, help me to use everything that you've given me to advance the kingdom of heaven. That's the kingdom I want to serve. After all, dear ones, isn't it true that that's the kingdom that lasts forever?